Turn with me to the book of Psalms and number 9 and we will read together the whole of this psalm. So we continue our series in the evening just going through some of these uh, early psalms in the Psalter. We come this evening to Psalm number 9 and we'll read the whole psalm together. The, the title of this psalm is to the choir master according to the Muthlaban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. (coughs) For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Hegeon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Well, I'd invite you to stand just for a brief moment of prayer before we come to study God's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your living word. This is your perfect and complete truth. Uh, All that we need for our lives and for completing our course in this life and arriving before the throne of grace, uh, ready to be received into everlasting life with Christ. Father, as we take a short time to study a small portion of your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see your truth, ears to hear it, and wills to obey in the days to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can keep Psalm 9 open as we come to study it together this evening. Psalm number 9 and our theme for, the, for this evening is wholehearted worship, wholehearted worship. 
Well, I think it's fair to say for most of us, there are certain things that we find it easier to be wholehearted about than others. Wonder, boys and girls, are there certain things in school that you really enjoy doing? Maybe, maybe even certain bits of homework that you, you enjoy doing it. You're wholehearted when you do it. There's other bits of homework or things in school that you really wish you didn't have to do at all. Uh, maybe some of you work wholeheartedly. You have in the past worked wholeheartedly in your studies to achieve the goals that you set for yourself. Some of you are wholehearted parents and devoting all you can to loving and caring for your children. Some of you are wholehearted in your daily work and as much as work tires all of us and at times perhaps we, we, we resist a little bit and wish we could perhaps get another hour in bed rather than go into the daily grind of work. Nonetheless, uh, you find it rewarding and, and you're wholehearted in the work that you do once you're, you start doing it. Uh, are there things that get your wholehearted attention? Are there things that you are particularly enthusiastic about? Are there people or events that cause your eyes to light up when you think about them or talk about them? What is it that we are wholehearted about in our lives? Well, in Psalm 9, King David says he wants to be wholehearted about his worship of God. Look at verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I will, I will, the psalmist says. Psalm 9, friends, is about wholehearted worship of God. And surely, if we are truly followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want our worship of God to be wholehearted. Whether it's our own daily devotions, our family worship, or public worship together as a congregation. And yet we're painfully aware, aren't we, that oftentimes any of those forms of worship in our lives, they are less than wholehearted. Sometimes as we sing, we're distracted in our minds even if our mouths produce the words. Sometimes we pray and either here or at home and we get up and we feel like we may as well not have bothered because we just weren't focused. We, we didn't know what to say. We were tired. Our hearts weren't in it. Sometimes our worship is not wholehearted. But as Christians, we shouldn't be content with that, of course. And as we thought this morning about how there's such a thing as genuine faith. Well, one mark of genuine faith is that we want our worship of God to be wholehearted, whether it's our praise or prayers, whatever the case may be. How can we work towards more wholehearted worship? Well, Psalm 9 helps to answer that question. Like so many Psalms, it's written in troubled times. Life is far from straightforward for David as he writes this Psalm. And yet it's a psalm of wholehearted worship. And it's a psalm showing us how our worship can be more wholehearted. So three, three things that we should put into practice if we want to worship God wholeheartedly. First of all, we should offer praise for past protection. We should offer praise for past protection. That's the first thing David does in this psalm. After the initial burst of praise in verses 1 and 2... The next 10 verses or so, uh, they're, they're full of praise for God for things that he has done in the past for David. Look at verse 4, for example. 
for you, and notice the word you repeated over and over here. You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. And so David has a a laser focus, if you like, at the beginning of this psalm on God and his goodness and grace to him in the past. You, you, you have done these things. And as I say, David is not enjoying a time of just total bliss and peace when he writes these words. He's not writing these words lying in a hammock, uh, sipping a, a, a brightly coloured drink and relaxing on his holidays. If you look at verse 13, it says that he's going through a time of affliction. There are those who hate David at this moment in his life, as there were many moments of David's life. There are those who are out to get him, as David writes this psalm. But the psalm doesn't start with that. Not that there would be anything wrong. We've seen other psalms that do launch straight in, uh, giving, uh, telling God the problems that he faces. But on this occasion, friends, David chooses to begin not with his needs and his dangers, but with praise and thankfulness to God for all that he has done for David up until now. Enemies are at the door. Danger is waiting for David everywhere he turns. And what does he say? Wholehearted thanksgiving to you I will bring. In praise of your marvelous works I will sing. He says in verse 9, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Each and every time that David led Israel into battle against the nations, rising up against him time and time again, God delivered him and delivered Israel. And so now before David gets to today's problems, the latest stresses and headaches, he wholeheartedly praises and thanks God for the grace that he has received in the past. Fellow believers, do we do that? Before launching into today's worries and concerns, the next prayer point we have for ourselves, do we take time first to praise and thank God for the protections, for the answered prayers, for the abundant grace that he has given us up until now. I know certainly there are things in my life, even even preparing to preach each week and asking for God's help. And I know that too often I, I forget to offer him thanks and praise before or afterwards for help given. And maybe we can all think of such times in our lives we were quick to ask for help and somehow sometimes we're not so quick to give thanks for help provided like the, the ten men healed of leprosy by the Lord Jesus and only one of them came back to say thank you. And maybe sometimes we, we feel that if we do pray at all we, we face stressful situations. We, we, we have urgent needs and so we just pray about that and certainly there's nothing wrong. There are certain times in our lives when we just don't have time. We, we fire up a quick arrow prayer to God as we're walking into work or walking into someone's home that we need to to provide help and encouragement for uh, and we don't quite know what to do and we ask quickly for God's help. Uh, That's good. There are examples of believers in the Bible doing that. But as a general rule, friends, in, in our daily prayers, certainly in our corporate prayers, 
It's good that first of all, we give praise and thanks to God for the protections of the past. And we certainly can thank God for battles won and victories gained by his grace. We perhaps haven't been on the sort of battlefields that David spent time on. We haven't had to conquer literal physical enemies and nations and kingdoms. But can't we give thanks that we have a king who has defeated all our enemies? The Lord Jesus Christ gives new meaning to the words of David's statements here, doesn't he? That he is our ultimate stronghold and fortress and refuge. That he has defeated Satan and sin and death. That he gives us ongoing help. In the spiritual warfare in which we are still engaged. Jesus Christ is the one who has been building his church for thousands of years. And against all the odds the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. And so friends we have even more to thank and praise God for. In terms of past protection and answer prayer than David did. And there is much more besides that will be unique and personal to you as well. Has he brought you through exams? Has he answered prayers for better help or patience to endure poor health that seems to be ongoing? Has he given you opportunities to use your gifts in the life of the local church? Has he provided you with work? Has he blessed you to see your children's children? Has he kept his promises of seed time and harvest? Has he given you a faithful spouse? Has he given you a comfortable home? Has he spared you to see uh, the church built up in your day and generation? Then should we not be coming to him with wholehearted worship? Look at verse 6. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them perished. Every answer prayer we've received, friends, every battle won against sin by God's grace. It's a little miniature version going on in our lives of what will fully and finally happen someday. That David understands that his own past and present experiences, the victories that he has had, they're a little glimpse of what will happen in the future. When God's kingdom completely triumphs and all our enemies are put under Christ's feet forever. And it's the same for us, friends. What's happening in your life today, if you're a Christian, is a little miniature version of what will happen on a global scale someday. Christ is, 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 is enforcing and extending his reign over more and more of your life. Christ is doing away with more and more of your sin and mine. He is establishing his reign more completely over us each and every day. As we repent of sin, as we use our gifts, as we grow in grace... And one day what's happening in your life personally will have happened on a global scale as the kingdom of God is fully established. Can you point to anything at all that God has done for you today, last week, last year, over the course of your life? Well, if you can, then before we rush into our list of requests, let's be sure in our prayers to begin with praise for past protection So that's one way we can wholeheartedly worship God, offer praise for past protection. But a second way that we can, that will encourage us, will will produce more wholehearted worship in us, is we can think of the throne today. We can think of the throne today. 
And Ralph Davis in his little commentary in the Psalms here, he suggests that verses 7 and 8 are the key verses for Psalm 9. And I tend to agree, it's usually a good idea to agree with Ralph Davis. But look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Ralph Davis' title for his study in this psalm was Throne Control. Throne Control. And that's a good way to sum up the psalm and and the heart of it here in verses 7 and 8. That no matter how out of control things seem to be to us friends, we always must remember the throne uh, of total control upon which our God sits. And David in this psalm, he deliberately contrasts the, the chaos that the world is in with the perfect control that our God has, the permanency, the unchanging, enduring nature of God's reign over all people in all places. David himself, of course, reigned over Israel for 40 years, a long time. Our current monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, has been on her throne, I think now it's for 69 years, the longest reigning monarch in, in, uh, in our history. Although, of course, she doesn't have a huge amount of power today. But even those who seem so influential now, who seem so powerful now, eventually, friends, they are going to be consigned to the history books. Prime ministers, presidents, CEOs, they're really here today and gone tomorrow. Whatever control and influence they have now very quickly fades away. And of course, this past 18 months, among other things, has been a huge reminder to us from God that none of us really exercises the same amount of control as we might think over our lives or anyone else's. And we continue to be reminded of that even these days when we see flash floods in Germany and raging fires in Turkey and earthquakes in China. The natural world itself reminds us of the lack of control we have. And yet there's a proud part of us as human beings that expects to have control for everything to continue on the way we want it to. Maybe for you at the beginning of another week, there are things that you wish were more under your control in your work life, your family life, your own health, the uncertainties about the months ahead. Maybe with all that swirling around you, you find it hard to worship God wholeheartedly. Well, dear friends, Psalm 9 says to us this evening, think about the throne. Think about the throne. Think about that one ruler who is reliable, perfect in his knowledge, unchanging, powerful, in control, mightier than the rest, more powerful than the rest, more long-lasting than the rest. Jesus, Yahweh, our God. One writer says, it is the psalmist's conviction that God is seated, that he is still on his throne that gives him hope. In this psalm, Charles Spurgeon, whose sermon on Psalm 9 was a heartwarming read, Spurgeon said, How the prospect of appearing before the throne of the great king should act as a check when tempted to sin and as a comfort when slandered or oppressed. Thinking about the throne, Spurgeon says, it's a check, it stops us from sinning 
that comforts us in the midst of life's troubles? Are you tempted to give up on wholehearted worship? Are you tired of feeling like Christianity is uh, just being is, is just being maligned and ridiculed. It might seem out of date to some. It's all a joke to others. Are you struggling to believe in heaven's glory or that God cares for you, that he's in control of your life? Friend, if that's you today, think of the throne. Think of the throne. And think of the one seated on that throne. Several times, scripture makes a point of telling us that Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down on his throne. Psalm 110, for example. And this was, a, this was a cause of particular comfort and particular joy for the early church. It's a, it's a psalm that's referenced and quoted and alluded to several times in the book of Acts that Jesus Christ is seated on his throne. That's a, that's a sign of his total control, that nothing is threatening him, nothing is hindering his rule. He's seated He's at peace. He's perfectly calm. He is supreme. I've not been in too many real life courtrooms. I've seen a fair few of them on TV or in films. What happens when the the judge enters the courtroom? Everyone stands up and they're quiet. And they sit down only when the judge sits down and has invited them to sit. But the judge says in that courtroom goes, his or her word is the final word. He or she has complete control in that domain. Well, friends, this world is Jesus' courtroom as well as his throne room. And although we cannot see it today with our human eyes, with the eye of faith, we see him seated at the bench in heaven as king and judge. Before him stand all the nations of the earth, all the supposed chaos of our world, And all the circumstances of your life and mine. And he is in control. And knowing that. Knowing that there is a throne. With a perfect king and judge upon it. Should encourage us. To give wholehearted worship. To his great name. And that leads us to think lastly. uh, The last way in which we can offer wholehearted worship. Is to pray with faith. For the future. Pray with faith for the future. We should offer prayers, or praise rather, for past protection. We should think about the throne, and we should pray with faith for the future. It's as we remind ourselves of what God has done in the past, particularly through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's as we think of Christ seated on his throne today, that then we are able to pray with faith for the future. I remember hearing uh, a fellow RP minister preaching on Psalm 9 and he said that praise is like WD-40 for our prayers. Some of you will be familiar with using WD-40. It it eases things up. It makes things move more smoothly, doesn't it? Uh, And this preacher said, praise, praising God, thinking about the throne. It's like WD-40 for our prayers. It eases us into prayer. It sets us up for our prayers. Very few Christians would say that we find prayer easy all the time. But what helps us to pray, what helps us to bring our needs and our requests to God is praising him first, thinking about the throne. And then as we think about that throne, then we lay our needs before the throne. And that's what David finally does in the second half of this psalm. Look at verse 13. 
Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. And even now that he's asking for God's help, <coughs> even now that he has come to the point of, of laying his needs before God, <coughs> look at the motivation. Why is David asking for God's help? What motivates him? Look at verse 14. So that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. What David's saying is, I'm asking for your help, God, so that when you answer me, I can praise you even more. So I can tell more people about the wonderful things that you have done for us. That's what David's motivation is in bringing these petitions to God. It's so that he has even more reasons to point to, if you like. To say to people, look at the preciousness of my God. Look at the great salvation that he has given Spurgeon says, saints desire mercy's diamond, that they may let others see it flash and sparkle, and may admire him who gives such priceless gems to his beloved. In other words, he's saying, he's saying there, we, we want to see God give us good gifts so that we can say to everyone else, look at the goodness and grace of our God. Friends, do people know that we're getting through life By the grace of God. Do they know that that's what's making the difference for us? That it's why we have motivation to get up in the mornings. That it's our only hope. Do they know that? Or do we fall into into using the same sort of vague sentiments that everyone else uses around us? Oh well, nothing else for it. Just have to get on with things. Sure, we'll make the best of it. As I was saying this morning, Naomi uh, was more honest than that. She didn't just come out with those vague sentiments. Friends, our colleagues, our neighbours, our friends shouldn't just hear the same sort of empty chat from us that they can get anywhere else in the world. As we have opportunity, we should be telling them it's only because of Jesus. It's only because of God's grace and all the wonderful things that he has done for me that I have reason to keep going every day. Notice in verse 15, David starts speaking as though what he has prayed for has already happened. Look, at, look what he says in verse 15. He's praying here as though future events are already decided. Verse 15. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. David is so confident that these things will happen eventually that he talks about them as though they already have happened. Last week in Psalm 8, we thought about the Son of Man with all things under his feet, you remember? And I said, in some ways, we're still waiting for the day when all things are under Jesus' feet. Yes, he is in perfect control. He's finished the work of our salvation at the cross. But we're still waiting to see Satan finally totally defeated. Sin completely gone. The world, the created world made new. And yet it's because of the cross and the empty tomb, friends, we can pray with confidence and certainty. It will happen. And so David prays with faith. And he prays to God to bring about the complete end 
of all that is wicked and not as it should be in our world. Look at verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. This is the Old Testament equivalent, friends, of praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is David praying for the full and final kingdom of God to appear. David essentially prays here at the end of the psalm, God, put your enemies in their place. The word that he uses there for men in verse 20 is, the, is a word emphasizing the frailty of man, the, the, the temporariness of man, that we are from dust and we will return to dust. Kim Jong-un, with all his threats and all his pomp and all his wickedness in North Korea, he will return to dust. Those men and women attacking Christians in Nigeria and China and Afghanistan and many other parts of the world today, they're going to return to dust. The most influential people in our society today who are pushing the agendas that are undermining God's word, those people will return to dust. The Olympics came to a close today. The the closing ceremony took place in Tokyo a few hours ago. Uh, And I didn't really get to see a huge amount of the Olympics, but they felt a little bit different this year for me without uh, Usain Bolt to look forward to. I always enjoyed seeing Usain Bolt uh, running the most successful sprinter in history. Uh, Eight Olympic gold medals, an 11-time world champion, once ran the 100 metres in 9.58 seconds. Uh, And as well as being a supreme athlete, he always came out and entertained the crowd. He was a bit of a showman. Uh, he came out and uh, showed how confident he was and, uh, and gave the crowd a bit of a laugh. A real life superhuman it seemed. But four years ago Usain Bolt ran his last race. And he wasn't able to do what he had done so many times before. He was older and slower. At least by his standards slower. And his, in his very last race his hamstring went and he pulled up. In pain. And that was him done. For all his success, his power, his ability, like every other human, you see in both strength was there, and then it was gone. And someday he too will return to dust. Spurgeon says, All oh, the wealth and wisdom of Solomon. The power of Alexander, the eloquence of Demosthenes, if added together, would leave the possessor still only a man. That being the case, friends, we ought to think about the throne. The throne whose occupant has never and will never change. The throne of the living and eternal God himself. You can't see that throne with your human eyes today, but you will see it on your last day. Either when your body returns to dust or when Jesus returns and you stand before him. Will you be one who has sought to live a life of wholehearted worship. Praising him, thanking him for past protection. And praying with faith for the future and for his kingdom to come. Or will you be one who has failed to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And who will be cast out of his presence forever and who will face a fate worse than going back to dust 
but being punished for your sin. Loved ones, may we think about the throne. Think about the one who is a fortress, a high tower, our stronghold in times of trouble. As you come to that throne each day and worship, begin by praising him and thanking him for all that he has done for you. Meditate upon the one on the throne today. And pray with confidence in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, who is coming soon. Amen.